Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. Welcome to South Bay Community Church. If you're joining us for the first time today, we've been in a series here called Simply God, in which we have been probing various attributes of God. And today I wanted to tell you about another one. We don't think of this one necessarily as, a, as an attribute of God, like love or kindness or goodness. But I felt that it just fits right in with, with who God is. And so I want to tell you a little bit about that. It is Migdal. God is our Migdal. Uh, but before I uh, explain all that, I want to open up our time in a word of prayer. And then I'm going to begin by just kind of laying the groundwork, okay, for, for where we want to go today as I explain to you how God is our Migdal. Okay, so let's pray and then we'll get started. Well, Father, thank you so much. It is so good to be here this morning. God, thank you for your love for us. God, we are overwhelmed, God, just to, to know you. And Father, I, I know that folks uh, who have come into this room today have come from all kinds of experiences this week, some, some really good, some really tough. And, and I pray that in every way for each and every one of us, no matter where it is we are at in our lives today, that you, I pray that you would minister to us, that we would come to see that you are our migdal, that you are one that we can run to and that you are one that we can depend on. Uh, when there's no one else, um, it is you. And so, Father, speak uh, through me today. Speak to our hearts today. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, if you were here last week, I told you a little bit about our incredible trip to Israel we just returned from. But it was on November the 15th that 36 of us flew out of LAX headed to Tel Aviv for what would be a, a really life-transforming tra- uh, experience. Well, three days before we left, three days, the Israeli Air Force attacked a building in, nor- in the northern Gaza Strip, killing this man, Baha Abu al-Atta, the guy on the right. He is one of the commanders of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip. Now, if you weren't aware, the Gaza Strip is a 140-square-mile uh, territory on the eastern coast of Israel along the Mediterranean. You'll see it there in the red. You'll see there's Israel, and there's that area in the red. Six miles wide, about 32 miles long. For a lot of years, the Gaza Strip was controlled by Egypt on the south. And then in 1967, it was taken over by Israel during the Six-Day War. Now, just FYI, the West Bank also, as you can see at the top, is also in Israel, but is controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Well, in 2005, Israeli soldiers pulled out of Gaza, and it came under the control of the Palestinian Authority, even though Israel took it over in 1967. And since 2007, the Gaza Strip has been governed by Hamas, which is a fundamentalist, militant Islamic organization. So after Israel attacked them on November the 12th, killing Abu uh, uh, al-Attah, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza began firing rockets into Israel. They started firing rockets at Israel. And by November the 14th, which was the day that we left for Israel, they had fired up to 400, close to 400 missiles at Israel from the Gaza Strip. Now, no Israelis were killed uh, by the rocket attacks. And there were only a few minor, minor injuries. And so we called and said, hey, we're coming to Israel. And they assured us that we would be safe. Well, by the time we arrived in Tel Aviv, a ceasefire had been announced, much to our relief. And then a few days later, after we were in Israel, the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem 
issued a security alert to all Americans traveling to Jerusalem, to the Gaza Strip, and to the West Bank. Now, we were not going to the Gaza Strip, but we definitely had plans to go to the West Bank because of Jericho and Bethlehem uh, and are located there. The embassy, the U.S. Embassy said this. He said, U.S. citizens should maintain a high level of vigilance uh, and take appropriate steps and in increase their security awareness in light of the current environment. So that's kind of what they said, that we need to be very careful. And the alert was referring to an announcement that was made the day before by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo indicating that the U.S. would support Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Okay, again, West Bank was taken over by Israel, but it's controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Uh, the Jews want to create settlements there, and the Americans support that. And so they thought that if we made that announcement, that we support that, that there might be some backlash, and the Palestinians might you know, attack Americans because they don't like uh, us supporting uh, Israel in that particular situation. And so that's kind of what was going on when we went to Israel. Again, we were assured that we would be absolutely fine. It was truly sobering and eye-opening to be in Israel at this time. And then it occurred to me that uh, none of this was new to Israel. Uh, they have been in a state of war for literally 5,000 years. And today they rely on the Iron Dome which is their defense, air defense system to protect them, to intercept rockets coming in from the Gaza, from, from West Bank, and even from Syria. In ancient times, they built fortresses and walls for protection. Nearly 10 years ago, the National Geographic reported an extraordinary discovery was made of the wall that Solomon built around the city of Jerusalem. You might recall that he built the temple, and then he built the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Solomon was one of the kings of Israel, David's son, and he built that first temple. Solomon's wall was uncovered by Dr. Eliot Mazar, who is considered Israel's, one of Israel's greatest archaeologists. And here she is standing next to her discovery. The wall was unearthed near the Temple Mount, 230 feet long, 20 feet high. Along with the wall, Mazar found a gatehouse, a corner tower, large earthenware jars with Hebrew inscriptions, figurines, pottery shards, and other items which helped date the wall back a thousand years before Christ during the time of Solomon. Here's what she wrote. A comparison of this latest finding with city walls and gates from the period of the first temple as well as pottery found at the site enabled us to postulate with a great degree of assurance that the wall is that which was built by King Solomon in Jerusalem in the latter part of the 10th century B.C. She added, This is the first time that a structure from that time has been found that may correlate with written descriptions of Solomon's building in Jerusalem. And what were those written descriptions of Solomon's building in Jerusalem? Well, it was... None other than Old Testament Scripture, 1 Kings 3, chapter 1. Take a look at it. And by the way, if you received a Baywatch, that's our program. Inside, there's an insert there with most of the verses listed there for you. A couple of fill-ins. You can also follow along on our South Bay Community Church app. Or again, look at the screen and hopefully you brought your Bible. But 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. The written description referring 
uh, to King Solomon. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So there it was. That's what Dr. Mazar was referring to, that Scripture said that he built a wall around Jerusalem, and she found it. She found it. And again, we talked about this last week, that when we went to Israel, we realized how real God is because everything he said in Scripture came to pass, and it's true, and we see it right there in, in the Holy Land. And so the Bible says that Solomon built a wall around Jerusalem to protect it, to protect it from its enemies. Now, didn't, now Solomon didn't build just walls. He didn't build just walls. If you look at 2 Chronicles 8, 3 through 6, the next set of, of verses there, 2 Chronicles 8, starting in verse 3, it says, And Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and took it. He built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the store cities that he built in Hamath. He also built Upper Beth Horon and upper, Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities, and that's key there, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars, and Baleth, and all the store cities that Solomon had, and all the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All right, so this is, makes it very clear. Solomon built not only walls, but verse 5 said he built these fortified cities with walls and gates and bars throughout Israel. And in verse 6 says he built them for his chariots and his horsemen because they were his primary weapons of war. Well, when we were there, we had an opportunity to visit one of his fortified cities. It's called Tel Megiddo, which is on a hill overlooking the valley of Megiddo. Which Megiddo, according to the uh, book of Revelation, is where all the nations of the, of the world will, will gather to attack Israel in the last days. Here's an aerial view of, Tel, of what's left of Tel Megiddo, which is now uh, an Israeli national park. It looks like, from the aerial shot, it looks like a pile of rocks. And according um, to this monument that was there at the entrance to the site, Megiddo, this monument here at Megiddo became an Israeli city around the 10th century B.C. That's right around the time that Solomon was there ruling over Israel. Archaeologists went on to discover a massive wall and a gate on the site that dates back to the time of King Solomon. And at the bottom of this monument, there is an inscription which reads, and I know you might not be able to read it, but it's a, it's a verse, and I'll show it to you in the next slide, 1 Kings 9 it says this, this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, the royal palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and the cities of Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. So there it is right there. He built the city of Megiddo. Now, actually, it had been built by the Canaanites and all kinds of folks had taken over it. But there's evidence that he came around 1000 B.C. and built his city on that site. He used slaves to build his fortified city, and that was Megiddo, and we had a chance to go there. Furthermore, Megiddo was one of the places where he headquartered his chariots and his horsemen. If you take a look at 2 Chronicles 1.14, it says, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And so Megiddo was one of Solomon's chariot cities. He kept some of his horses and his chariots there. Now, do you know what became of Solomon's walls and his fortified cities and his chariot cities? Do you know what became of them? Well, in 586 B.C., 
the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, tore down the wall, and ripped down and destroyed the temple. 2 Kings 25.10 says the whole Babylonian army under the command of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. They came in and destroyed those walls. And then according to 1 Kings 14 and 2 Chronicles 12, not long after Solomon died, Shishak, who was the pharaoh of Egypt, the leader of Egypt, swept in from the south with this powerful army of 60,000 horsemen and 1,200 chariots, attacked Jerusalem, destroyed all of Solomon's fortified cities, including Megiddo, destroyed that city. And during one of the excavations at Megiddo, archaeologists found this fragment proclaiming Shishak's conquest of Megiddo. Again, archaeology proves scripture that what God's word says happened indeed happened. And the Jews quickly learned, they quickly learned that all those walls and all those fortified cities that Solomon built couldn't protect them. It couldn't protect them. Well, that brings us to uh, Migdal. God is our Migdal. Let me explain it to you with the story. Several years ago, true story, Pastor David Platt hiked the Himalayas with a few of his friends. Helicopter dropped them off at 12,000 feet where they could barely breathe. And then he started walking down the mountain, visiting village after village. His journey inspired him to write his latest book, Something Needs a Change. It's a great read if you haven't had a chance to read it. But in one of the chapters, he tells about his encounter with a young 20-year-old girl in her early 20s. Her name was Alicia. As he was trekking through the mountain, met her and, and got a chance to chat with her. Alicia told Platt that she was born on, what, on the day that her family considered a bad day. It was a bad day. And they were superstitious. And she said that her father proclaimed that she was born to worship the devil. She was born to worship the devil. So her parents built a small room placed an altar in it for the devil, to the devil. And from the time she was around three or four years old, she was forced to enter that darkened room every single night and place an offering at the altar of Satan. And she said it was absolutely terrifying. One day, everything changed. She said everything changed. One day, a blind man with his guide walked into the village and told her father about Jesus. He had never heard of Jesus, had no clue who he was. But when he heard that Jesus was the Son of God and, he had a, that, and that he had authority over the devil, Elisha's father believed. He believed in Jesus. And so the blind man gave him a Bible and he started reading it to his family. And before long, his wife came to believe and Elisha came to believe. And her grandfather became furious. And it wasn't just him, it was the entire village. They were outraged. Because they believed that by introducing a foreign god into their village, it would bring bad and invite trouble upon the entire village. Within a matter of weeks, the entire family was ostracized. And they were not allowed to, 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 to retrieve water, for example, from the village well. And then one day, she said the unthinkable happened. Here's what she told Platt. When I was about 12 years old, my mom and dad were out walking on the trail to get water and supplies from another village. And they didn't come back. And I started to get worried. And that's when the village leaders came to my home. They told me that as my parents were walking back to our village, a landslide occurred. The rocks came tumbling straight toward them, and my mom and dad fell down the mountain and died. And as she was relating this story, David Platt, 
He said that tears just streamed down her face. And then she said this, but that's not actually what happened to my parents. My mom and dad didn't die in a landslide. The village leaders stoned them. Platt asked, how do you know they stoned them? She continued, years later, I learned how village leaders had attacked my mom and dad on the trail that day, pelting them with rocks until they were dead. And after this, the leaders pushed my parents' bodies down the mountain. And then they fabricated the story about the landslide and spread the word that just like they'd warned, if you introduce a foreign god into the village, the gods and spirits in the mountains will do bad things to you. Alicia told Platt that even to this day, if anyone goes to the village and talks about Jesus, they will remind them that there was a couple who believed in Jesus and they were, and they were killed in a landslide. And that's what will happen to you. And for many years after her parents died, uh, or they were killed, Alicia was nervous about publicly declaring her faith um, through baptism because she knew that what happened to her parents could also happen to her. To her. She could be martyred. But the love of Christ proved too irresistible. And one day, and just a few years ago, in fact, Alicia put her faith in Christ and was baptized. And today she teaches in a village not too far from where she used to live, telling others about Jesus. And you wonder, how can she do that? How does she do that with the enemy lurking so close by? She could do it because of migdal. The Lord is her migdal. See, migdal is a Hebrew word. It comes from Proverbs 18.10, which was written by King Solomon. Take a look at Proverbs 18.10 in the Old Testament. Here's what Solomon wrote. He said, the name of the Lord is a strong tower the righteous man runs into it and is safe. All right, circle that word tower. That's the word migdal, Hebrew word migdal, and it means tower. Actually, according to one Bible dictionary I read, migdal literally describes a place or an agent for greatness. It's an elevated place. Now, it was believed that Solomon wrote Proverbs 18 around 950 B.C. at about the same time that he was building walls around Jerusalem, the same time his people were building fortified cities and chariot cities in Jerusalem and all throughout Israel, all about the same time. And then he writes this. And here's the thing. Solomon knew that what he was building couldn't provide Israel the safety and security that it needed. He knew they could only provide scant protection for his people at best. And Solomon knew that only the Lord, only the Lord could provide what Israel needed, which is why he wrote, the name of the Lord is a strong migdal, a strong tower, and the righteous man runs to it and they are safe. The only safety he knew came from the Lord. In verse 10, I want you to underline that phrase. Underline the phrase, the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. You know, in 1962, actor uh, Gregory Peck won the Academy Award for Best Actor for a film called To Kill a Mockingbird, in which he played a lawyer named Atticus Finch, who stood up to racial injustice and prejudice in the Deep South. Now, this is Peck here, the American Film Institute actually named Atticus Finch as the greatest movie hero of the 20th century. Now, I think they should have named Obi-Wan Kenobi as the greatest hero of the 20th century, but they chose Atticus Finch. A young man who attends our church today who saw that film 
1962. I didn't see it because it was for my time. But a young man who saw that film in 1962 was so inspired by this character, Atticus Finch, and for what he stood for, that he told his young wife that he wanted to name his firstborn son after this character. He wanted to name his first son Atticus, Atticus Ma, because he wanted his son to be like him. But his wife would have none of it. No way you're going to name our son Atticus. And so they compromised and they named him after the actor Gregory Peck instead. And that's how Pastor Gregory Ma got his name. That's a true story. True story. And now there's something about a name, isn't there? A name isn't just a name. In Bible times, a person's name stood for the person. A name wasn't just a name. Your name represented who you were. It stood for your character. I mean, to know someone's name was to know the person, and that was particularly true of God. If you take a look at the next verse there, Psalm 9, verse 10, it says, And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. For those who know your name, they trust you. When you know God's name, you trust him because of who he is. See, to know someone's name was to know them. In Proverbs 18.10, in the name of the Lord, and the name of the Lord here, it says, it is a strong tower. The name of the Lord stood for God himself. It stood for God himself. God's name is God. It is God. So when, for example, and these verses are not in your notes, but I'll just put them on the screen here for you. So, for example, when Psalm 113.1 says, Praise the Lord, praise, O his servants, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. You're not just praising the name of the Lord, you're praising God himself. Because his name and who he is are synonymous. When it says in Psalm 140, verse 13, Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. You're not just giving thanks to his name. You're, when you give thanks to his name, you're giving thanks to God himself. When Psalm 33, 21 says, For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. You're not just trusting in his holy name. You are trusting in God himself. So when Proverbs 18, 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, this is telling us that God himself is a strong tower. You know, in 1983... 150 world-class runners gathered in Sydney, Australia for the inaugural run of the longest and toughest marathon in the world, the 543-mile race from Sydney to Melbourne, 543 miles. Now, to give you some perspective, a marathon is roughly 26 and a quarter miles. The Sydney to Melbourne ultra marathon is the distance of roughly 21 consecutive marathons all right 21 marathons strung together so on the day of the race a toothless 61 year old potato farmer and sheep herder named cliff young sauntered up to the registration table wearing overalls and boots galoshes over his boots he went there to sign up for the event and at first, the people thought he was kidding. They thought he was there just to watch the race, but he wasn't. He was there to run. You see, Cliff grew up on a farm 
uh, which, which had no horses or sheepdogs uh, and no four-wheel drive or ATVs or four-wheel drive Jeeps. So when he had to herd the 2,000 sheep spread out over 2,000 acres, when they had to be rounded up, he would take off on foot after them to gather them up. And sometimes it would take him three days to gather up 2,000 sheep. And he would go until he gathered them all up. So when he showed up to run, they thought it was kidding, but he paid for his registration fee, so they gave him a number. And when the gun went off, the runners took off, and bringing up the rear was Farmer Cliff in his overalls and galoshes. The entire country was riveted on this race, the longest in history, and they wondered who this crazy old man was. Five days. 15 hours and four minutes later, Cliff Young came shuffling across the finish line in Melbourne, Australia, winning the ultra marathon. Now, he didn't win by a few seconds. He didn't win by a few minutes. The nearest runner after him was nine hours and 56 minutes behind him. Nearly 10 hours. He beat the next runner by nearly 10 hours. You know how he did it? See, when the others had to stop to rest, which you surely had to do when you're running five or six days, he just kept running because he was conditioned to run in his overalls and galoshes. This is an incredible story. It's a true story. I mean, would you ever do anything like that? Would you run a race like that? Well, probably most of you are like me, and you don't like to run, right? And yet we all run. We run home. We run to the market. We run to Target. We run to the bank. <laughs> we run to the gas station. We run to Starbucks. We run to the bathroom. Sometimes we run scared. Sometimes we even run from God. Or we can even run to God. Running is what Solomon had in mind when he wrote Proverbs 18.10. As I said, he wrote at a time when Israel is under threat from its enemies. And he, he knew that the walls and fortresses and the chariot cities he, were, he was building were inadequate to protect Israel. And so he called on his people to run. He said, don't run for the hills. He said, run to God, who is our strong Migdal, our strong tower. You know, while we were in Israel, that's exactly what we did. The 36 of us, we were in a foreign country. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know where the bomb shelters were located. We didn't know how to contact the police or the, or the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. We didn't run to the airport to catch the next flight home. We paid to go on this tour. We were not about to go home. So you know what we did? We, when we got the alert and we heard about the rocket attack, we ran straight to God. And every day when we were, in fact, when we were, headed, when we were heading to Jericho and Bethlehem and the West Bank, I said, okay, okay, guys, oh, church, all right, be in prayer. Let's pray. Let's be in prayer and ask God to protect us. And so we ran to God. We put our trust in him, and he protected us, and he kept us safe. And how good it is to know that we can all run to God, right? You can write that one down. I can, I can run to God in times of trouble. You can run to God in times of trouble because he is your strong tower. As you know, we have trouble everywhere, right? There's trouble everywhere. Marriages are in trouble. Families are in trouble. Workplaces are in trouble. 
mean, Todd and Laura, I saw Todd and Laura Ellenberger this morning, and, you know, Friday morning, they, they were looking at some news notifications and heard about the shooting at, at the naval base in Pensacola, Florida, where their son Jacob uh, is stationed. Todd told me this morning that, that um, he was in the classroom where the shooting took place. He was there on Wednesday, and he was discharged on Thursday. He said, okay, you're done. You can go on to the next class. And, and he would have been there on Friday if he hadn't been discharged from the class on Thursday. There's trouble everywhere. On top of that, we have health troubles and money troubles and legal troubles and relationship troubles, and there's, there's trouble on our streets. There's, there's, there's trouble everywhere. And you know what a lot of people do when they, they run into trouble? Take a look at Proverbs 18.11, the very next verse. After verse 10, verse 11 says, A rich man's wealth is his, is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. Solomon said that a rich man will run to the bank. He runs to the bank into his bank account instead of God because he is under the illusion that his money is a, strong, is a stronghold. It is a wall for him. It is where he finds all of his security. Other people might run to drinking or other, some kind of, you know, or other kind of substance to, uh, to help them through their troubles. Proverbs 31, verse 6 and 7 says, Let beer be for those who are perishing. Are you beer drinkers out there? Let beer be for those who are perishing. Wine for those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Oftentimes when people are in trouble, what do they do? They hit the bottle. They drown their sorrows in liquor. Or they drown their sorrows by getting high. So often when trouble comes, we, can, we, can also, we also run to our friends and family. Uh, that, even that can be fleeting. Psalm 41, 9 says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Now, don't get me wrong. Now, I, I believe that we ought to all turn to our families if we have family and friends to turn to when we have trouble. Go to them for prayer and go to them for support. I think that's very important. But more than anything else, right, church, we need to run to God. We run to Him first. We go to him first. So let me ask you, where, where do you run to? Where do you run to when you're in trouble? I hope you run to God. You know, Christmas is only a few weeks away, and it's, it's always a festive time around here. But because I officiate the lion's share of funerals around here, Christmas, when Christmas rolls around, when December rolls around, I can't help but think of all those families who the, in the past year had to bury a loved one. And I, I can't help but think of what they must be going through and, and how hard it must be for them. Thanksgiving and Christmas. You know, a long time ago, after experiencing a number of broken hearts, I came to the conclusion, I came to this conclusion that emotional pain was more excruciating than physical pain. Uh, that was my conclusion. At least with physical pain, depending on what kind it is, you can take a couple of Advil and it might bring you some relief. But you can't take a pill to, to ease your emotional hurts. I mean, it can take months. It can take years. It, sometimes it'll never, ever go away, and you just learn to live with it. You learn to adjust. And a loved one doesn't have to die for you to experience emotional pain. You can experience emotional hurt just through a breakup, just through estrangement, through separation. Maybe your son or daughter moved away to another part of the country or to another part of the world, and you just missed them, and it's just terribly painful 
not to have them around. Or maybe you're not on speaking terms with your brother or your sister or your father or your mother. And it is painful. You can experience deep emotional wounds just out of sheer loneliness. I've been there, done that. And the pain can be gut-wrenching when everyone else seems to have somebody and you don't. Maybe you hurt deep down inside because of rejection or abandonment or betrayal or because of some words that someone spoke to you that just cut to your heart. There are a myriad of ways we can experience deep emotional hurts. And here's the thing. We all go through it. Right? We all experience it. We all experience hurt. And when you hurt, you can either run from God or you can run to God. So often people run from God because they will often blame God and say, it's all your fault that, I, that my loved one died. You know, I've walked with God for quite a few years now. And one thing I've come to be absolutely certain of, absolutely certain. That God does not connive, and God does not scheme, and God does not plot to intentionally hurt us, to hurt you. When I was diagnosed with cancer this fall, it did not even enter my mind that God had something to do with it, that God was doing this to me. He allowed it, but he didn't purposely inflict it on me like, I think I'll get Gary today. Because God is not cruel, God is not ruthless, God is not cutthroat, that is not in keeping with who he is. The truth is, many times there's just no reasonable explanation for why bad things happen, for why a child gets cancer, for why a young wife is, or mother is cut down by a drunk driver, or, or why the shooting takes the life of these young cadets or naval officers in Pensacola, the only question is, when you're hurt, where will you run? Where will you turn? How good it is to know that we can turn to God. So write that one down. That's your second point. I can run to God when I'm hurt. Run to God. And do you know why you can run to God when you're hurt? Number one, because he cares for you. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your... Anxiety on him, anxiety is on him because he cares for you. When you underline cares for you, God cares for you. Whatever you're going through today, God cares for you. Whatever you're, however it is that you're hurting, he cares that you get through this time. He cares about you. Second, you can run to him because he is near you. One of my favorite verses, I've, I've clung on to this for years. Psalm 34, 18, the, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You know, this is one of those special verses that's referred to as a, a promise. A promise. A promise in the Bible is when God pledges to do something. And here he pledges, he pledges to be near those who are brokenhearted and to save those who are crushed in spirit. Right? So, and how near is God to us when we're brokenhearted? He's right there. Right? Right there. Holding your hand. He's right there inside your heart. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. He is there. The only condition for this promise is that you have to be brokenhearted. And if you're brokenhearted, God, the promise is God is near to you. Third, we can run to God when we are hurting because he will carry us. He will carry us. I love Isaiah 46. For I love it more and more. The older I get, the more I love this verse. Because it says, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he 
who will sustain you. I have made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. I love that part. I will carry you. And I'm getting to the point where one of these days, people will have to start carrying me, right? Isn't that good? God will carry you to your old age. He will hold you in the palm of his hands until you are in his hands in heaven. He will carry you because he is our strong tower. Well, finally, write this one down. You can run to God even when you have sinned against him. Even when you have offended God, you can run to God. I want to close by reading what I think is one of the greatest psalms uh, in the Bible, Psalm 38. Uh, turn there if you, if you brought your Bible. Psalm 38 was written by King David. It is believed that he wrote Psalm 38 on his deathbed. And he was reflecting back on his life and thinking about his life and thinking of, and, was, and he was grieved by his sin. And he talked about the misery of his sin, the misery that it caused him. And that comes through very vividly in this psalm. Psalm 38, I'm just going to read, not, I'm not going to read all of it, just, but I'm going to read some of it, but follow along with me. Starting in verse 1, David wrote, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For, I, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning. and There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My, heart, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. And then jump down to verse 15. But as for you, O oh Lord, do I wait. It is you, O oh Lord, my God, who, who will answer. For I, for I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to, to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. And then finally, verse 21 and 22. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. I love that passage. And maybe you do too because you can relate because of your own sins. And I can relate because of my own sins. But David was broken it's so clear he was broken because of his own sin. And he was utterly miserable because of his sin. And again, this doesn't specify which sin or sins he committed. He was referring to here, perhaps, you know, his adultery with Bathsheba, his affair with Bathsheba, and the murder of her husband Uriah was on his mind. But that's neither here nor there. What matters is that when it came to sin, David didn't run from it. He didn't hide from it. He didn't cover it up. Instead, he was sorry, and he confessed it. He acknowledged it, and he prayed to God, and he asked God to remember him and, and to have mercy on him and have forgiveness on him. And that's such a far cry from what so many people do today. So many people today, when they sin, they, they run from God. On Thanksgiving evening a couple weeks ago at around 8.40 p.m., 
This man right here, Muhammad Jihad, a 62-year-old homeless man, was hit by a car on Adams Boulevard here in Los Angeles. The car that hit him, according to a, a surveillance video, was a white sedan, possibly an Audi A5. The surveillance showed that the car pulled over after it hit him, uh, and then it pulled over to the side for just a moment, and then it took off. And, and Jihad was lying, now lying motionless on Adams Boulevard on the street, and a second car, possibly a white Cadillac Seville, came and ran over him and just kept going. Minutes later, a bystander spotted his body and called 911. That's when Jihad was struck by a third car. This time, according to the video, surveillance videos, a white or gray Ford Focus. This time, he became lodged underneath the car, which traveled down Adams Boulevard for about a mile, then finally pulled into a gas station at Crenshaw and Adams, at which time the driver, a woman estimated to be in her 70s, who, uh, according to the, the video, got out of her car, looked underneath the car, got back into her, her car, reversed the car, dislodged the body, and then she went her merry way. The man was pronounced dead at the scene. Such a tragic story. And it's also a perfect illustration of what we all, so often do when we sin, and that is we just take off. We just run and cover it up. And church, that never works. That never works because God always knows he sees everything. He sees everything. He knows everything. And it never works to run and to hide. Numbers 32, 23 says, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. One day, all of our sins will catch up to us. And we will appear before God and have to give an account of our lives to him. But you know what happens if we confess our sins? You know what happens when we come clean, when we come before him and confess them? You know what will happen? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will cleanse us. He will forgive us. And David wrote this. Solomon's father wrote this, Psalm 32, verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. God forgives. If you run to God instead of run from him, God will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you. He will welcome you back into his arms. And you know why God can forgive us of our sins? It's because his son, Jesus, paid the penalty for it. It's because he sent his son, Jesus. We're going to celebrate his birth in just a couple of weeks. He died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins, which is, why, which is the only reason why he can forgive us of our sins. So what do you do when you sin? Do you run from it? Do you cover it up? Do you hide from it? Or, or do you run to God? What do you do when you hurt? Do you run from God? Do you blame God? Or do you run to God? What do you do when you're in trouble? Do you hit the bottle of booze? Do you get high or do you run to God? I hope you make a run for him because he is our strong tower. He is our migdal. And, it, and in his arms and in his arms only, you will find safety and security and forgiveness and mercy and love and so much more. Let's close our time in prayer.
as you bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to give you a moment just to say to God whatever it is that you need to say to Him. Maybe you're here today and you've been looking to all the wrong things to bring you safety and security. Maybe you're here today and your world is full of trouble. And instead of running to Him, you're running from Him. Maybe you're in a world of hurt. And again, instead of running to Him, you're running away from Him. Or maybe you're in sin and you run from Him. You cover it up instead of to Him. Right now, say to God whatever you need to say to Him. Ask Him for forgiveness if you need to ask Him for forgiveness. Tell Him you're running to Him right now if that's what you need to do. Father, what an amazing, incredible, awesome God you are. In a world in which there is so much trouble, in which there is so much hurt, in which there is so much sin, our sin, my sin, we have in you a strong tower, a tower so big and so great that it provides us the security and the forgiveness and the love and the compassion that can only come from you. Thank you, Father. Lord, we need you today. We cry out to you. We need you. We need you in these times of troubles. We need you when we hurt, when our heart breaks. We need you when we sin. Oh, if ever there was a time we need you, it is when we sin. So thank you, Father, for being there for us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, bless your, bless your church. Bless your people. May we run to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.